there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. Today, we're going to talk about Parsha Miketz, which was last week's Torah portion. So just for a brief summary of the Torah portion, this Parsha is primarily about Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, still talking about him. So this week, he is finally freed from prison when he is asked to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and he correctly interprets the dreams to explain that there will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. When Pharaoh hears this explanation, he realizes that it's true, so he puts Joseph in charge. He, he makes him second in command. Joseph puts in place a system so that the grain will be stored during the seven years of plenty, so that when it's the famine, there will be food. Joseph also gets married and has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Then the famine finally comes throughout the land. And when that happens, Egypt is the only place with food because Egypt knew it was going to happen. And Joseph had put all of the systems into place to store the grain. So Joseph's brothers have to come to Egypt to get food. And when they arrive in Egypt and ask for food, Joseph is the one who recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. He accuses them of being spies and insists that they bring their brother, their youngest brother, Benjamin, back with them to prove that they aren't spies. But in the meanwhile, he's going to keep their brother Shimon as a hostage. So the brothers go back to their father Jacob and explain what has happened in Egypt. And of course, it's not so easy for them to get Benjamin away from Jacob because Benjamin is the younger brother of Joseph, the only remaining son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favored wife. And but the brothers say, The brothers say, you know, look, this Egyptian vizier demanded that we bring Benjamin back. We won't be able to get Shimon back if we don't bring Benjamin. And Ruvain offers himself, and finally Judah offers himself as the personal guarantor that Benjamin will be returned. You might remember we talked about Judah I think it was last week or the week before and how he had this big character transformation and became a better person. So Jacob trusts him. So they take Benjamin, go back to Egypt. When they go back there, Joseph invites them all to this feast. And then he frames Benjamin as a thief and says that he will let the rest of the brothers go, but Benjamin will have to remain in prison. And that is where the Parsha ends. Quite a cliffhanger probably where soap operas got the idea. So there's one interesting little tidbit that happens. So as I mentioned, Judah is the one who offers to be the guarantor for Benjamin's life. But before he gets the opportunity, first Ruvain says to Jacob, if we don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill two of my sons. To which Jacob says, no way, Jose. And we hear that And we think, well, duh, obviously you're not going to kill someone else's kids because someone else is dead. Because as he says, what, I should lose, on top of losing a son, I'm going to lose two grandsons. What's the point of that? But certainly Ruvain wasn't a stupid person. He was just operating within the culture of the time. And so, as I've mentioned before, the Torah only points out things that need to be pointed out to teach us something. So maybe that was the way the culture was at that time, but by... Jacob's vehemence against that as a as an option it should be an indication to us of a few things first of all that children shouldn't pay for the sins of their fathers and that's a theme that comes up a lot in Judaism children are not responsible for the sins of their parents and vice versa parents are not responsible for the sins of their children and it also just is an interesting comment on the meaninglessness of violence against people who do not commit the initial act of violence. Like if people are looking for revenge, you take revenge, maybe you shouldn't take revenge in the first place, but if you're going to take revenge, you take revenge against the person who committed the wrong, but you don't take revenge against the family of the person who committed the wrong. It's immoral and illogical 
but at the time, I don't think it was immoral. And, well, logic is logic, but it, it was in the culture. But the Torah is telling us, no, this is not the way to act. You don't get to enact violence against people as revenge, and definitely not against the family of people. So that was just an interesting thing that happens in that section of the Parsha. There was another thought that came to me as I was reading the Parsha, and I really try when I'm talking about the Parsha, when I do these episodes, not to get too political. I really don't even mean to get too political with this podcast in general, though it's going to happen because we're talking about ideas and values, and also there's conservatism, so politics will come in. But I really like to focus on ideology, but sometimes politics is going to come into it. So I was thinking about the fact that when the famine happened, Egypt was a superpower. Egypt was the only place with food, and everyone had to come to Egypt for food. They were, and for a long time, Egypt was. In fact, throughout most of the Torah, whenever a great empire is mentioned, Egypt is that great empire. But we don't really think of Egypt as that way anymore. And generally, when we think of great empires or countries with a lot of power, you know, people think of the United States and the West, and people get very upset that the West has all of this power. But I think it takes perspective and looking at history to realize, okay, the United States and the West are the, not just the political powers, but also the cultural powers. Most of our books and TV shows and music and philosophy for a long time have come from Europe and the West and the United States. But it wasn't always that way. Egypt was great in antiquity. There was Greece. There was Rome. China was a great empire. The British Empire the Ottoman Empire. So it's interesting to me that people are so upset that right now the West is the dominant culture because it changes. Okay, so let the West have whatever it's been. Let's say it's 600, 500, 600 years. So that's their time in the sun and maybe a new culture or a different, if something better comes, then something better will replace it. Sometimes great nations were replaced by other nations because of more power, or often it was because one nation was more powerful than the other. But it's one thing to win in a battle. It's another thing to become a dominant culture. And I think Thomas Sowell makes a really good point about this because he points out that the criteria which allow one country to be great at a certain time are not the same criteria that will allow that country to be great at another time. So if you think about all of the ancient cultures, or or ancient cities, even recent cities, big cities were always founded on waterways because people needed water and that was the best way to travel. So Egypt could be a powerhouse because they had the Nile and the Yellow River in China allowed China to travel and trade and trade also allows for a sharing of culture and sharing of ideas and technologies. But as technology developed, people weren't locked to waterways and so different areas that maybe had different resources, whether it's food or animals or technology or people, because people are also a resource, were able to become more powerful. So it's not necessarily that one culture is better than another. It's really what's needed for the time. You should read Thomas Sowell to get a better, more thorough understanding. I'm sure he talks about it in multiple books, but I was specifically reading Discrimination and Disparities, so I recommend that book if you're looking for this topic, specifically Discrimination and Disparities. Anyway, I just think it's something interesting to ruminate on that there's no reason to have a problem with the West being the dominant culture. People have a hard time with with a lot of plays being written by white men. But for a long time, there wasn't even written languages in certain cultures. So they didn't produce great plays. It doesn't mean that they didn't have great stories to tell or great storytellers. It just meant 
that they didn't write them down and so they couldn't be passed down. It's not a judgment on that culture that they didn't have written language. It's just a fact. Some cultures had written language. Some didn't. Some languages spread better. Some didn't. So we have a lot of plays and a lot of books by white men. Okay, people talk about mathematics coming from the Arab world. That's what they had to offer at the time. The Western world had to offer for a time philosophy and art. It's just a difference. It's not saying one is better than the other. It's just timing and circumstance and maybe what the world needs. So just something to think about. And the last thing I wanted to talk about on this week's Parsha is something I really don't have an answer for and just something that I'm, that I've been thinking about. And I think it's probably a question that a thinking human wrestles with all of one's life. So since I'm struggling with it, I am inviting you to struggle and think about it with me. And I think Joseph in Egypt is a good example of this idea. So Joseph, from last week's Parsha, Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt. And the reason he's thrown in prison is because he denies the sexual advances of his master's wife. And it's very noble, and he's only 17, so the fact that he resists is extra noble. But he stays true to the principles that he was brought up in, not to sleep with a married woman, maybe not to sleep with someone outside of his own marriage, and it lands him in prison. And so the question that I've been ruminating on and that I was reminded of by this Parsha is the idea of sticking true to one's principles and morals, despite what other people may do. There is a lot of talk amongst, well, I'm sure it happens amongst many groups, but I've noticed it recently specifically amongst some conservatives, and it's, and I, I can't say conservatives in the media, media, I can only say a couple of people in my personal life, and they say, you know, well, the left lies, so we should lie, or the left plays dirty and calls people names, so we should play dirty and call people names, whatever the example is. And I think that the point of living, the reason why we're on this earth and what God expects from us is to follow the morality that he gave us, no matter the situation and no matter how hard it is, pretty much no matter the situation. I suppose there are some very extreme situations, but even that we talked about last week when we talked about Hanukkah, there are few sins that even a Jew must give up their life for. So there are clearly times when you should not sacrifice your morals for a good cause. Basically, the ends don't justify the means. I have always been much more a means justify the ends type of person because we don't really have control over how things turn out. God wants things to go a certain way. Other people will do things. We can't control nature. There are so many things we can't control, but we can control what we do. So we should be the best we can, and then things will happen as they may. But saying the ends justify the means allows people to do whatever because, oh, well, it will be good at the end. So we can lie to a bunch of people now about politics because that will help us get the person we want in office. Or we can silence a bunch of people's speech now because that will bring about a time when everyone will get along. I think that's wrong. I think if it has to be one of the two, the means justify the ends. And I do think we are expected to act in a moral way despite the situation. But I don't know. Maybe there is something in stooping. You see, even when I talk about it, I'm more convinced of my position, but I, I still have an open mind to it. The idea of, you know, stooping to the level of playing dirty and using ad hominem attacks and, and, and manipulation or whatever it is for a good end. But I really don't think that's what God expects from us or what he wants from us. But it's uh, something I'm thinking about. So I hope that if you are entirely one way or the other, I just hope that you'll think about it with me. I think that we are not expected to have all the answers. God has all the answers and he's given us 
a lot of them, but they're not always so easy to find or figure out, and we're not always so perfect as to accept the answers that are there. But I think we are supposed to think about things and maybe not be so certain about everything and to have an open mind to new ideas and different ways of the world working. So I hope you will continue to think about that with me. And I want to thank you so much for listening. It's really a joy being able to do this. I was realizing the other day that I've always wanted to, I suppose as all humans, want to leave something behind that will theoretically last, you know, after we're gone. And, you know, I always hope that would be something more than a Facebook page. And I think now I'm doing it. And I think also it's something that's good. So I'm very excited to be doing this. Thank you all so much for being here. And just remember to be grateful today. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!